Morning, glory, and evening, Grace America. You do it. Welcome back to the Hillsdale Dialogues. Once a week, I sit down with Dr. Larry Arn and one of his key guys or gals from the faculty at Hillsdale College. For the last couple of weeks, Dr. Arn's been joined by Dr. Thomas West, professor of politics at Hillsdale. We've been talking about Plato. And after a week, and even after a day of hearings before the Ways and Means Committee and a week of scandal, it is a perfect place to be. And I want to start there before we go into the the end conversation about the Republic in a, a brief conversation about the dialogue, the apology. Dr. Larry Arn, um, is our government corrupt? Well, it's too large to be anything but corrupt. Uh, the bureaucratic form sprawls. And it locates authority in concentrated ways, but all over the place. So these IRS agents, for example, they're just kings in their own domain. And they apparently have picked uh, 501c3s that have Tea Party or Patriot in their name and investigated them and caused them trouble and given them hassles. And this form of government is very prone to that. And we're making it worse lately because we are beginning increasingly to exempt parts of the bureaucracy from any congressional control. So Congress has been reorganized to try to keep a watch on this sprawling executive, and that's why Congress works mainly through committees, and what committees do is oversee parts of the bureaucracy, much more than the president does. But lately they've been exempting important agencies even from that process, and so they become more and more laws unto themselves, and they're human beings, so of course they do what human beings do when they're given unchecked power. Dr. West, you're an expert on the founding as well as the Plato and the Greeks. And one of the ideas of the, of the framing was to make the republic so vast that you really couldn't get factions to combine together to oppress people. But it seems that this IRS story is defeated by the very breadth and depth of government that Dr. Arn just referred to. That's right. It's uh, what's the original idea of, of Madison's that you just alluded to in Federalist 10 is in a big republic, lots of different interests, there will be difficult for them to find a single basis on which to oppress the minority. What we've seen instead, of course, is that in our, in our time, government having been organized in such a way that, the, that uh, there aren't general rules that we are governed by, but rather agencies that get to make ad hoc decisions on this or that group, uh, that leads to the, the the absence of the rule of law in the sense of general rules and the replacement of that by decisions made by individuals or by agencies, which are off, often out of the public eye and not scrutinized and go on for years, as in this IRS case, been going on for years. And it's finally come, up, come open, come to the open. Uh, but... Um, Madison's argument is, has not been refuted by that. That's a, that's a problem of, the, of government. Government has changed its character. The country's still big and there's still lots of interests. But when government is organized in such a way that these interests can get power over citizens and groups, then you've got the recipe for despotic government, which is what we see uh, happening increasingly. And that's not an overstatement. I had my friend Mark Meckler of the Tea Party founder uh, of the Tea Party Patriots on. He used the term tyrannical yesterday, and some of my listeners objected to the use of that term. But in fact, 
the IRS was acting in a tyrannical fashion, though not with complete authority. So let me phrase it this way. If Speaker Boehner or Daryl Issa or today the chairman of Ways and Means, Dave Camp, is in the news for the hearing he held today, if any of or all of them decamp to Hillsdale, Michigan, and they say, hey, Dr. Arn and Dr. West, you guys have studied this problem of accountability in government for a long time, and you read a lot of old books about it, what are we going to do? There are too many scandals, and they could say the IRS, the EPA, the HHS, they could say Benghazi. They could talk about the SEC, which is increasingly implicated in this. What are we going to do? And so, Dr. Arn, you've got Boehner and three committee chairmen sitting there. What do you tell them? Well, uh, in fact, we are telling them. Um, we talk to them all the time through the Kirby Center when we teach them about the Constitution. In the end, if you could get a, a, a clear picture in your mind of the way constitutional government works and how it's supposed to take care of the public interest by its methods – you could start taking steps back that way, and it'll take a long time. This government has been erected over 100 years, and it'll take a long time to to uh, to <laughs> unerect it. But you'd start by simple things like making the bureaucracy accountable. You'd uh, you'd you know a, a great first step is called the Reins Act, which would uh, m- mean that if they passed a regulation that had more than a certain amount of economic impact, it would sunset quickly if the Congress didn't pass it and the president sign it. And in, in general, that, so that's a step, and it's one step, and it's a good one. But in general, what you do is you would start uncomplicating and decentralizing things. You know, it used to be until, say, 1935, 1945 even, the state governments were much larger than the federal government, and local governments were larger than state governments, and local governments mainly preceded by voluntary work. You know, the People in the city did the work of the city. And so you'd start devolving some of this stuff. And instead, the direction is all the other way. They just passed a big thing out of committee today about federal student loans. And there is a group, uh, an official advisory group to the, to the government, to the Government on Education Matters, created in the Higher Education Act of 1965. And I forget it's an acronym, but this group of 18 people has recommended that the Department of Education become a comprehensive regulatory agency of all levels of education, just like they have in Europe. And when they created the Bureau of Education back in 1880s, the explicit thing was that it would not be that. So the momentum is actually in the other direction right now. And so, Dr. West, uh, let's be very clear-eyed here. The Greeks that we have been talking about were always very clear-eyed. Is there any realistic chance of changing the trajectory of the evolutionary path of the American government back towards small and limited government? Realistic chance. Well, you're, uh, you're, you're asking me or you're asking Plato. Plato in the Republic suggests no. Every time you try to make things better, you're going to make things worse. That's the lesson of Book 8, when democracy turns into tyranny. And if you look at the actual character of how democracy turns into tyranny in his book eight analysis, it's very reminiscent, as a matter of fact, kind of spookily so, of our situation today. Plato says what happens is that a group of people that Socrates calls drones, that is people who don't really do anything other than talk and don't want to dominate, they convince the common people that their real enemy is the wealthy and they need to expropriate the wealthy in order to have equality. And so the drones, uh, and then so, and Socrates says, and by the way, the, the wealth, the, the people don't actually get the money. The money mostly goes to the drones. 
says Socrates. Does that sound familiar, Hugh? It seems to me that is a, a pattern we've seen more and more, is that we keep hearing about we need to reach out for the, to the poor, the downtrodden, the suffering. And what we see is that the eight out of the most eight out of the ten most wealthy counties in America are in the Washington D.C. area. Right. That doesn't sound to me like redistribution towards the poor. That's that's the drones figuring out ways to get wealth into their hands in the name of helping the people. I must say that is in twenty three years of broadcast the most elegant and graceful segue. I have ever heard. And so, and so <laughs> Dr. Art, are we living in book eight of the Republic? Well, uh, no. Uh, I, I fear that we may come to live in that. But uh, right now, the American people, by large majorities, don't like this kind of government. It's not really very likable. And they feel powerless before it. And there hasn't been, and we won't know we're sunk until we get this thing I'm about the name, there hasn't been a coherent and and determined and eloquent and intelligent effort to attack this kind of government and talk about the other kind since Reagan. And I think that the the ground is laid for such a thing to prosper. We just have to find the people who can lead such an effort. And, you know, that's one reason I'm glad to be in the education business. Dr. West, do you agree that the ground is ripe for such a person or is that attempt doomed? No, I, I do agree that uh, that a lot could be done. I think the, uh, the the sign of this is the dissatisfaction in the people. You you don't, you find all kinds of things that the people just don't like. That our party elites, uh, both Republican and Democratic, are often either indifferent to or close their eyes to, don't notice. So that dissatisfaction is growing. One of the things one can't help but notice is how terrified people in the establishment become whenever there is some sort of a spontaneous grassroots movement, for, for example, the Tea Party movement that the IRS went against. Why do they think it's so important to go against these people? They're afraid of them. And why would they be afraid? Because they sense that out there in the country, outside of Washington and outside of New York and those places, that there's a lot of resistance that could take form if some politician or some party gave it a shape and a direction oriented towards the common good of the nation. That's that's one thing we've seen a, an absence of recently, but that could happen. Resentment leading to resistance at the ballot box. We will come back and talk about now the Republic, the cave, the myth of Ur, and the apology on this week's Hillsdale Dialogue. You can listen to all of the Hillsdale Dialogues at uh, hillsdale.edu or q for hillsdale.com or find the link easily at com. Stay tuned. Twenty-one minutes after the hour, America's Hugh Hewitt. My weekly end-of-week conversation with Dr. Larry Arn of Hillsdale College, joined this week as he has been for the past two by Dr. Thomas West, professor of politics at Hillsdale College. We are talking about Plato's Republic and concluding the conversation before we take a few minutes to talk about Plato's apology. Uh, Dr. West, if I could ask you to, to summarize for people what the cave is and why so many college students and every college student at Hillsdale reads about it in the Republic, and thinks about it at Hillsdale. The, the cave is an image that Socrates comes up with at one point where he says, I'm going to give you this image to tell you what education is like and also lack of education. In the cave, uh, we are, prisoners are sitting on the floor and their heads are fastened so that they can't turn all the way around. They can see their neighbors but not anything else 
except what's in front of them. What's in front of them is a wall of the cave on which shadows are being projected from behind them. And people behind them are carrying little puppets and other objects that, that uh, where a fire casts a shadow on the wall. And the people who are prisoners, and that's us, they think the wall, the shadows on the wall, are reality. They can't make a distinction between an image and the real thing. And Socrates, that's, edu- that's where we are. And that's, but, but there's hope, because b- behind us, and in fact, all the way along the opening of the cave, is an access to the light. Uh, and so what, ha- what has to happen is there has to be a turning around of the soul, a turn to the light, and an ascent out of the cave into the sunlight so that things can be seen as they are. The cave is so taught everywhere, and everybody remembers it, because such a striking image of, in a way, the gloominess of the platonic view of reality, that we are stuck in this realm of superstition, nonsense, stupidity, error, and yet there's the hope, there's the ability to ascend and to escape. Now, Larry Arn, is this powerful because everyone recognizes the truth of their own condition in it? Yeah, of course. Um, You know, education, when it's done right, is a challenge. It makes you examine. You know, I I often have parents say... uh, uh, to me, are you going to reinforce what we've taught our children? And we, I always say, I always answer the same way. I would say, surely not. <laughs> I'm probably going to tear that down. And we're going to teach them something that you might not be able yourself to teach them. But I think you'll like the result. Uh, I said to my father often before he died, I spent a long time learning complicated reasons why you were right. <laughs> but and, and he, he really liked that. But, of course, that involved some turning Right, I had to think anew. I had to question. I had to see that some things he said were not sufficient, and so we we all recognize. We all have. We recognize in the fact that we all have moments where things become clearer to us than than they did before. They were before, and we must discard things. In other words, we see the light. Now, Doctor West, there's a going up. There's also a coming back down in the uh, cave allegory in the in the Republic. Why would anyone do that, and how does that happen outside of the allegory? Well, uh, the uh, the coming back down that means that when you've seen things as they are, when you've had the insight, what do you do with it? Do you simply stay there by yourself and 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 stare at, at stare at the things as they are, or do you go back to your fellow man? Uh, and there are a bunch of reasons why people might concern themselves with their fellow human beings. One is, uh, we're all in the same boat. We're all part of a political society, and if it crashes, we all crash. Uh, So there's that. Another is just ordinary love for your fellow man. A third is that the philosopher, the man who has made the ascent, he's going to be looking for students. He's going to be looking for companions, people to talk to, friends. And so all those things are going to drive the person back into the, the shadowy realm, and to try to help. Now, what does it mean to help? What it means to help is, in part, to shape the culture. Those puppeteers I was talking about earlier, that, whose shadows are on the wall, that, that's, that's a metaphor for culture, for what we would call culture or, you know, television, movies, the academic world, all of that. And, how, and how do, that's what shapes our perception of reality in terms of the, the things that prevail in public life, the attitudes and, and ideas. And so you can help that way if you come back from the light. That, that's, that's what Socrates is saying, and that's the kind of beneficent activity 
uh, that a person of real insight can share with people. Uh, Larry Arnn, how much time is spent in trying to shape the puppeteers? Because that is, for example, at Hillsdale, they still have their iPods with them. They still have their iPads. They're still going to be going to the movies, however limited their choices might be. There, There's no place that's isolated anymore for education. So... How do you keep the culture from burning so bright and filling them with so many images you, you can't get them up? Well, give them a lot of work. And, ah, uh, that's you true. Know, keeps them really busy. If, uh, you know, to confront, like, first of all, our, Tom, Tom earlier made a, a comparison between our situation and that of Athens. The Athens of Socrates was an Athens in trouble. You know, it was losing the most disastrous war, which was ultimately fatal to it. And it did that in a kind of arrogance and a kind of nihilism, which identified strength with truth. And the only thing that mattered then was become strong. And Socrates, with this image of the cave and in most of the things that he did, he calls all that into question and he substitutes for it something purer and cleaner and higher and more beautiful. The things that you see in the light are superior and more compelling to the things that the shadows you see on the wall of the cave. And there's a confinement that you're in from which you're liberated. And so these things around in the culture, you know, I I have lately done some things that bring me into social relations with people who think entirely differently than I do, and they're powerful people. And I've noticed about them when I talk to them that they don't seem to be as aware as I am that the things they think are controversial. And here at Hillsdale, you know, people say that we're insular and we're not open and we're not diverse. The truth of the matter is we're in a fierce argument all the time about the worth of things that is the worth is denied most everywhere. And so we have to study in that atmosphere and it's good for us. And so we, we have that, uh, that this thing that you say is a problem for us, the iPod and the culture and the news and the common opinion of man. That's also a spur. It sharpens the mind. Dr. West, do you agree with that? You bet. It, it's right. That's true. Uh, the, uh, the, 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 the college offers a kind of counterculture. And... If you come to the college and if you come out of just normal America, which all of our students do, you're going to be confronted with the necessity of thinking about what's right. You can't we're not we're not giving answers that are unchallenged. They're challenged everywhere in, that we in our whole society. And yes, that's what we try to do is open these kids up to thinking clearly a about what are what are the ideological presuppositions of what of the kind of stuff that we are sh- inundated with all the time and then b what's another way to understand things what's a as as larry says what's a higher and a purer way of understanding things and that would be represented by the ascent out of the cave in the socratic image when we come back from break we'll turn to the other great uh, lasting impression that many people have of the republic which is the myth of ur with dr larry Arn, president of hillsdale college dr thomas west professor of politics at hillsdale college All of the Hillsdale Dialogues, this one and all that have gone before them, available at hillsdale.edu, as are applications if you're a young individual and you're intrigued by this, as are they available at hughforhillsdale.com or with a link at hughhewitt.com. Stay tuned.
24 minutes after the Our America, it's Hugh Hewitt, joined by Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, and Dr. Thomas West, professor of politics at Hillsdale College, as we uh, are each week at this time to do a Hillsdale Dialogue. I asked Dr. West to summarize the cave, Dr. Arn, so I'll ask you to summarize the myth of Ur and why that is so significant. Uh, well, that, the, the, the Republic ends with this myth. And it's about a man who goes down to the underworld and sees things there, and it gives an account of what the underworld is like. And this account is contrasted with the account that's in Homer. And it's tied up with, uh, with in, in the Odyssey especially, it's tied up with a criticism of Homer. And the account differs because in Homer and to the heroes led by Achilles, uh, Human life is surrounded by a kind of chaos and a kind of dimness. The underworld is a bad place to go to. I think Achilles says that uh, he would rather be a serf in in life than a king in the underworld. And so, yes, that's in Homer. That's in Homer, right? And so, in uh, in in uh, and what that teaches one is that life is in the end meaningless. And it teaches an attachment to the things that we are naturally attached to in this world. We uh, uh, Poets write poems about the things we love, about our loved ones, about our own things, about the joys of life. And if you think that there's nothing but that, you can become fanatical in your attachment to that. And your life, that, that in other words, those loves that you have can come to seem... You grasp them with a desperation because they're ultimately, they don't last and they're replaced by something that means nothing. And so Socrates substitutes this myth in which there are worlds below with a kind of order to them. And where you go in the world below has something to do with the virtue that you exercise while you're here on earth. And so it's a more coherent understanding of the of the afterlife, and it connects to the practice of virtue here. And so it, it is a kind of, uh, uh, you know, a lot of people miss this about Plato. Tom West, for example, in his introduction to his translation of the four Greek texts, the Apology being one, with his wife Grace, they write a beautiful introduction. I mentioned it before, but you should go read it, because... Um, what we remember about, about Socrates and Plato is the radical questioning and the doubt. But what we forget is that there's a bracing side of that, uh, uh, like in the allegory of the cave. There's a light to see. There are things to know. And those things are participations with us in the eternal. And in the light of those things, then, our attachments on earth, our families and our loves, their beauty is, is highlighted and strengthened, even as it's as they're cast in a larger world beyond them, and so the myth of Ur helps to understand substitute an understanding of the afterlife that is bracing and encouraging, and that means giving courage to one. And Doctor West, why is Odysseus a figure in this? What's what's the recast? You know, he comes into this myth, and what's his role here for the listeners? About they go off and they read it for themselves, but what's the the, the short take on why he's there. Well, there, there are two stages that are described in the afterlife. First is you get punished for anything you did when you were alive. 
And so and Socrates makes that clear. If you were really bad, you get really badly punished. You might have you might have your skin stripped off. You might be dragged and beaten, whatever. Then there's then there's the second half, which is all these souls now that they've been beaten in some cases or left alone if they were okay. Then they have to choose their next life. There's going to be a reincarnation, and but they're going to forget that they were ever alive. And in the reincarnation scene, that's when we see Odysseus. And Odysseus, it, it says Socrates, has learned his lesson. When he was alive uh, in the world of Homer, he was animated by a love of honor and a, and a love of domination. He's realizing that's really empty. And so what Odysseus chooses as his next life is a way of life that is quiet and unassuming and decent. And 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 whereas other people who maybe were living relatively decent lives in their in this while they were alive end up choosing these terrible lives ter- life of life of a tyrant for example uh, in which they end up eating uh, their friends or you know cannibalism or who knows what so it, the point socrates is making is y- you have this is a world in which you get punished for what you are or rewarded for what you were and it's a world in which you choose your own fate That fate is not imposed upon you by some mysterious divine agency. You make it yourself. You built that. Free will. We'll come back with the Apology America. Don't go anywhere. Dr. Thomas West, Dr. Larry Arn, in this week's Hillsdale Dialogues, except to hughforhillsdale.com to get them all. Stay tuned. Forty-four minutes after the Hour America, last segment in this week's Hillsdale Dialogue, and it's not very fair to the apology, one of the greatest dialogues ever written or pieces of literature ever produced, but Dr. Thomas West and Dr. Larry Aron will take a swing at it in our eight minutes. Uh, Dr. West, why read the apology today and, and explain to people what it is if they haven't heard of it before? Well, the apology is, a, is Plato's version of the defense speech that Socrates made at his trial when he was put on trial for... Uh, refusing to believe in the Athenian gods, bringing in his own new gods, and corrupting the young. And, and, the, and what happens in the trial is, of course, famously, Socrates is convicted, and he's, he's, being, he's told he will be given the death penalty, which, he then, which is then fulfilled in, in another dialogue later. The reason why it's important is because in this speech, Socrates first responds to the charges against him, and then gives a kind of overview of his whole way of life, which turns out to be the deepest level of his own defense of himself. What I really am, says Socrates, I'm a man who's devoted to the good of my fellow citizens and to my own good through the pursuit of virtue using my mind and not submitting to any authority outside of myself. And it's that intransigence, that intransigent pursuit of excellence, of virtue, that is the very thing that gets him in trouble with Athens, and that Socrates turns it around on Athens and says, wait a minute, you're guilty. You're the ones who need to do what I'm doing. You need to aspire in the same way I do to genuine human excellence, and don't remain contented with the stories you happen to be told when you were growing up. Larry Arndt, why are people mad at him to the point of putting him on trial for his life and eventually convicting him? Well, the people who are mad at him are... The drones, they're the people who uh, have authority. He says that uh, there are three accusers, and one of them, he says, they're angry on behalf of the rhetoricians, and that's people like these sophists who educate the young into how to be powerful. 
And some are mad on behalf of the poets, and some are mad on behalf of the third thing that I can't remember. But they are established interest, and sure enough, Socrates... The, the politicians is the third thing. The third, yeah, How sorry, could you forget? Yeah, sorry, yeah, the, the real drones. And they're you know, the drones with power. And, uh, and, and, uh, and they are people who are thriving in this decaying society. And, you know, it's decay. We studied it in Thucydides, and we saw some of the reasons in Thucydides why they were, why they were deserving of losing this war in some respect. And Socrates is opposing them, and he's calling into question the pillars of their authority. And so they're very angry with him. And it's a very interesting thing. Uh, Tom and Grace do a good job in their introduction to their book explaining this. Socrates really confirms the charges against himself and hurls them back at them, which is one reason why he loses and is and, and, and gets the death penalty, and he is simply uncompromising in in uh, e- even when he's been condemned, there's a section of the trial when he can appeal for his you know his sentence, and he mocks them in that section too. Now, Dr. West, did he? There were two votes in the trial, and he lost both of them. But it's it, it, unclear how much he lost them by. Did he ever expect to win? Did he want to win? It, it, no. What what it looks like is that he had made up his mind that he was going to use the trial as an occasion to create the most stark confrontation between his way of life and that of the Athenian, the average Athenian citizen. Uh, exaggerating, really, the difference between them in order to make a point about the importance of what his way of life was in in a way that would be so memorable that that way of life would continue on into the future. And indeed, that that is exactly what happened. Now, there are other accounts of this by other writers, uh, Larry Arn. Why is this one the one that everyone repairs to, not Xenophon? Uh, Well, Plato was the man, and, uh, you know, Xenophon was the man, too, but he was a littler man. And this account is uh, is more, you know, it's a, it contains a more powerful presentation of Socrates' account of himself, and that's what's interesting here because Socrates names himself the Gadfly. He's helping to wake up Athens, and uh, and that 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 image is the heart of what's going on in this in Greek philosophy. We think of, by the way, of of Platonic, of the whole classical school arising now as somehow a product of the greatness of Athens, and that's true, but it's also partly a product of the decline of Athens. They have something to argue with. They rise up to a very great height because they have a case to make against overwhelming prestige and force. And what is that case, Dr. West? Sorry, uh, uh, the case the case against Athens? I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. The... Uh, the, the case against, no, the case against Athens, as Socrates says, Athens is like a big and noble horse that is sleepy, uh, that's, that's drowsy. And if you're going to be wide awake, somebody needs to bite you. He says he compares himself to a gadfly, or we call it a horsefly. Really nasty, stinging. But the stinging is only stinging from the point of view of the horse who wants to stay asleep. Socrates is saying, look, if you're wide awake, you won't. It, you won't need to be stung. You'll be happy to be awake. And that's what I'm here to help you do. So he was really trying to say, this is a way of life. This whole cons- this orientation towards genuine human excellence, not remain, not sub- submitting blind to blind tradition and custom. 
that's what makes a society finally and ultimately worthy. So was he successful because it didn't work with Athens, Larry Arn, but it may have worked in a longer time frame? Well, it's like that question you ask at the beginning of the thing. Is there a chance for America? The answer is it's successful if people read it and learn it and are ennobled by it and learn to look at the light. And and that has happened in ages since and is happening in our time, perhaps to a sufficient degree. But whether remember this about, you know, the question, can we save America? The great question is, are we ourselves in a position to live well, including amidst adversity? And the answer is we are in that position. And so in that to that respect, and that's a decisive respect, yes, we are. It is successful. Dr. Larry Arn of Hillsdale College, president of Hillsdale College, Dr. Thomas West, professor of politics at Hillsdale College. Thanks both for a, uh, a bracing, a wonderful walk through some of the introduction to Plato and to all those who are prodded by this. Go and get your own copies of the dialogues and of the books. And if you are young or if you are not so young, go to hillsdale.edu and think about applying and going forth and doing that. Every Hillsdale dialogue that we have covered is available at Hugh for Hillsdale.com at Hillsdale.edu. And the link is also at HughHewitt.com. Stay tuned.